I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today, my guest is Dimitri Salida. Dimitri Salida and I go a long way back. I, as a kid, started a company. When I was 14 years old, I started a business, Golden Gear Boxing, and I sold boxing gloves throughout the U.S., especially in the world, but definitely throughout the U.S., to local gyms, fight stores, online, etc. My biggest passion still to this day is boxing, and when I was 14, I decided to turn that into a business, and I was selling boxing gloves to tons of professional fighters all over the world. I had looked up to Dimitri for a long time from a distance. Professional fighter, up and coming, had an incredible story. And I had reached out to him because I wanted to do a photo shoot with him and my company. Long story short, I got in touch with him and we had an impressive, we had a funny conversation. You know, he said I was very persistent, which is still true to this day. And, you know, a few days later, I met him at Star City with his mentor and coach, Jimmy O'Faro, and my dad and our photographer went. We did a photo shoot with uh, Dimitri as well as my first kickboxing coach, Val Stoyanov. And Dimitri has an incredible, incredible story. And I was so honored to have the chance to speak with him on this podcast to talk about his journey, his life, life as a professional fighter, life after fighting, and something we actually never spoke about, um, in all honesty, until this podcast, grief. Dimitri lost his mom at a young age, and, you know, Dimitri and I actually never had discussed anything about his mom, loss, or anything in that regard, and I am so grateful for Dimitri coming onto the show and speaking so honestly and openly about his feelings, his perspective, and so much on this podcast. It really requires a certain amount of bravery to speak so openly about things that are so real and genuine, and I'm so grateful. So for those of you that don't know, Salida is a former professional boxer, world title challenger, and now founder of Salida Promotions. Dimitri Salida had an incredible record. He, today, as a promoter, his promotions, Salida Promotions, features some of the best young prospects and establishing contenders in North America and worldwide. Some of his biggest names to date are Clarissa Shields and many, many more fighters. He was born in the Ukraine, grew up in New York City, and from age of nine, Salida started boxing. Salida was one of the many incredible boxers that came out of Star City Boxing Club, which was run by the incredible man Jimmy O'Farro, which we dive into on this show. Dimitri had an incredible professional career. He fought for a world title and retired with a record of 35 wins by way of knockout, two losses, one draw. I first met Dimitri when I was building my first business, Golden Gear, at the age of 14. And as a young Jewish kid who loved boxing, I greatly admired Dimitri. 
both as a boxer and because of his heritage as a Jew and his background. Over the years, I've tried to help Dimitri in his career when he first started promoting, and you know, I hope one day I could somehow collaborate with him down the road. To this date, I still look up to Dimitri. He embodies the fighting spirit on and on, and it was really a true honor to have him on this show. So with that, uh, hope you enjoy. Make sure, as always, leave a review if you like this, share it, and thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Dimitri, thanks for taking the time to connect today. You know, I guess prior to all the technical difficulties, I was telling you a little bit about, you know, why I decided to start this podcast. And I really wanted to start this podcast to create a platform where I can help inspire people to build a life they love and ultimately overcome adversity, obstacles that life will throw at them. And, you know, I know you know my story, but I lost my dad to cancer when I was 20 and my mom five years later to a rare cancer. And a lot of that inspired me to, I guess, really push me to think introspectively. What is it I want to do in this world? What do I want to ultimately create? What do I want to build? And how do I want to live a life that I love knowing that our time here on earth is, is limited. And I guess, fortunately, you know, I started to think of all these things through a series of unfortunate events and losing my parents. But that's really what inspired me to start this podcast, to try to create a platform to be a beacon of hope for others who are facing adversity, struggles, etc. And I guess I, I found it pretty fascinating that just as I'm telling you all this before, you said that, you know, building a life you love is something that we strive for, but very hard to do. And I guess before we even like dive into all the good stuff, actually, I wanted to understand better what you meant by that. First of all, it's nice to connect with you. I've uh, known you for many years, and uh, it's an interesting experience for me to communicate with you vis-a-vis uh, -vis this platform and vis-a-vis -vis your, your podcast. When I met you almost 20 years ago, you know, uh, <laughs> you were a young and aspiring businessman, and uh, always great to communicate with you, and I'm happy to be on this podcast. Thank you. Well, you know, I think one of the most important things is to enjoy what you do for your work. Uh, and uh, because that takes up a tremendous amount of our time. You know, I've been blessed to have grown up in boxing and have a real true passion for it. And, uh, you know, when my career started to wind down as a fighter, I began promoting my own fights, really with that goal in mind at the moment. And then, you know, slowly started to morph into a business. And uh, while very challenging at times, and certainly all startups are very tough and lots of, difficulties uh boxing is a very unique business uh, there's very few people that that can truly you know s survive doing it and 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 uh you know thank god that there's been significant progress and that uh you know that we work with great fighters and and television networks and are able to to uh to get our fights uh viewed and televised to the fans and 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 it is truly a you know uh something that i enjoy every early morning and every late night. So, yeah, I've, I've been blessed that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you can find what you're good at and what you love, I think, and you're able to do that professionally, I think that's absolutely, you know, a, a blessing. No doubt about it. So I know you, as you mentioned, for, for, for several years now. And, you know, since I'm a little kid, I was always inspired by, by you, your story, your journey. And as I'm sitting here preparing for this podcast the last few days, I've read so much about you and 
I guess I'm even more fascinated now because there were so many parts of your story that maybe I've, I've read or heard or knew, but as I dug deeper into your story, I really, I think it's such a fascinating and interesting and amazing, inspiring story journey that you've been on. So maybe just to take it back, I usually like to start these from, from the beginning, which is starts at childhood. So you grew up in Odessa and I read your family moved here when you were around nine years old. Yes, my family moved to Brooklyn, New York when I was nine years old in 1991. What was it like growing up in Odessa? Well, it was a different lifestyle. Uh, I mean, I remember it vaguely. You know, I remember time spent with my parents, remember the house that we grew up in, remember having a cat and a dog. And, uh, you know, then coming here and kind of, you know, comparing and contrasting the things that we had and the lifestyle, you know, and, and, and seeing the differences in Obviously, growing up in Brooklyn, seeing the differences in culture and getting Americanized, that was quite a process. Yeah, and when you were in Odessa, I read your your family moved because greater opportunity, but also there was still quite a bit of, of anti-Semitism going on at the time. Is, is that correct? Yeah, well, it was kind of an uncertain time. I think shortly after we left, you know, there was no more Soviet Union. And, the, you know, those the years leading up to that, there was a great amount of uncertainty. and you know, and during that time, there was a great wave of, of Russian Jewish immigration. Uh, you know, all of my extended family left the United States, some to Israel, more, mostly to the United States. And, uh, you know, and we followed suit. My father's grandmother uh, and his brother came to the United States in 1979. That was kind of the first wave of Russian Jewish immigration. You know, and then in 1991, we, we followed. And my mother's side, my uncle, my aunts, everybody came to... Uh, to the U.S. Okay. When you got to the U.S., I guess, do you remember, was that like a very challenging time? Because you're, you're, you're around nine years old. So I imagine that it's, it's quite difficult. Did, did you speak English at the time or you, you came here and almost learned everything from scratch? No, I didn't speak any English. I mean, you know, culturally it was exciting uh, for a little bit of amount of time uh, to kind of see new things. And it was obviously, but once you get past that excitement, it was obviously challenging. And uh, I mean, I remember a being in a big airport in Moscow, you know, boarding Delta plane, uh, never being exposed to something like that before. That was very exciting. But one of the things that I remember, we landed in JFK and I've watched, uh, you know, movies of the United States and, and my impression of it was seeing big buildings everywhere. And I remember, <laughs> and I remember driving down Bell Parkway and just kind of seeing, you know, nothing really. I was like, man, this is, this is New York City. <laughs> <laughs> but that, was my, oh, that was my first surprise. I got it. Um, <laughs> I can only imagine what the feeling is like getting on that plane, coming to a new country, leaving your hometown behind, leaving your your family, you know, much of your your family, your friends, etc., and coming here. I can only imagine. I read actually that the first time you watched a boxing fight, it was a Tyson fight, and you were around five, so you were still in Odessa then. Yes. Were you instantly like enamored with the sport, or? Is that just your first memory of, of watching boxing? Well, I don't remember if, I, if my first fight was uh, Rocky versus Ivan Drago or Tyson versus somebody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do remember that I watched the Rocky movie in the wintertime and I put on my boots and I went running, you know? <laughs> the music, I love that. The music, the, music, the music inspired me. Got it. But you weren't boxing yet at that time. I was not boxing. I was, you know, I was not physically strong kid growing up. So my parents would take me to different sports uh, clubs uh, and at about seven years old I joined seven eight I think seven 
I joined a karate club and I really became very interested in it from the beginning. It was very, very difficult, very tough. And, you know, at that time, karate was also kind of underground. Karate was banned for many years in the Soviet Union. So it was just kind of emerging and it was kind of a cool thing to do. But, you know, but the trainers had a very tough mentality. It was very, very discipline oriented, very, very difficult training sessions, even when you were a kid. So uh, I remember, you know, certain things stick out in your mind. And I remember every Sunday we used to go on these long jogs from, from the gym to the beach. And it was probably four miles. Okay, yeah, but, but you're a young kid. <laughs> yeah, but you're a young kid. And I, was, I mean, I just had, you know, I, I just remember being at the end of the pack, you know, my first couple of Sundays and feeling that I was going to die, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but you get through and you get, and you get stronger and then you run with the packs. Makes sense. So once you're in the U.S. and you're, you're here, you're getting settled, did you take back up karate or how, how did you end up first starting to box? Yeah, so I went to uh, Paul Momando's Karate Academy, which was located on Bedford Avenue X. Well, initially I wanted to go right. I mean, I was really strongly fired by karate and was really into it. And uh, when we first came here for a couple of months, my parents didn't really have the money to take me to a karate place, karate dojo. But after, I think after about six months, five, six months, they had enough money to send me to karate for one class a week. Um, But Paul, you know, took a liking to me and he allowed me to come, you know, twice a week and then three times a week. And then I would come every day and he would have like kid classes and adult classes. So he would allow me to stay from like five to nine. So I would stay through all those classes. I was really uh, motivated, really inspired, you know, to uh, to be a great fighter in karate. And and Paul, you know, recognized some talent in me and actually my older brother, Michael. And Paul enlisted me in the Junior Olympics, which was a boxing tournament. So I really had my first boxing fight uh, while still training at the karate gym and the karate place. And were you were you training uh, in only boxing or you were still uh, throwing kicks and doing doing more traditional karate? But I was training boxing in a karate place, okay. so it wasn't really proper kind of training. I, I see. Um, and a little while after that, I fought some kickboxing fights, uh, and I beat this kid whose name was Alexei Garjula, who was a, I don't know, 8-0 or 9-0. He had several titles, very, you know, very uh, uh, respected guy. And uh, after that, I knew that it was time for me to transfer sports, to transfer into boxing, and I lived on... 2728 Kings Highway, uh, which is kind of against the Flatbush area. And I called around different boxing gyms. Uh, and the two most known places were Gleason's Gym, which was located in Dumbo, and Star City Boxing Club, which is located in Star City, part of Brooklyn. But Gleason's, you had to pay membership for. And Star City was free. It was a city program that allowed kids to train there for free. So, and also it was closer to where I lived. So I visited Star City Boxing Club. I remember it was in the summertime and I walked into the gym. It was in a basement. It was very, very hot. And I just, if, if today I would have to draw a painting of that view, I would be able to draw because it's just the atmosphere, the smell, the environment just mesmerized me. I was like in a candy store, really, really inspired and taken aback in a good way. And I went downstairs. I met a gentleman there and he said, uh, it's Friday. Come back on Monday. We'll we'll sign you up. And as I was uh, walking up, that's the, the it's not even a staircase. It's like a it's a ramp. It's a uh, and as I was walking up the ramp, Jimmy O, 
who I didn't really know as Jimmy O back then, was sitting outside uh, with some trainers. And he said, hey, young fellow, what are you doing here? I said, I came to join the boxing gym. He said, okay, so what did they tell you? I said, they told me to come back on Monday to get the application. He said, no, 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 no. Come with me. You, I'm going to give you the application now, and you'll bring it back filled out on Monday, uh, and then you'll be, you'll be ready to start training. So I was very excited, got the application, filled it out, came back on Monday at 5 o'clock, which is the gym was 5 to 8, and uh, there was a process of kind of getting initiated, and the first trainer of all the new kids was, was a man by the name of Mr. Tate. Mr. Tate was probably in his late 70s by then, but very fit, walked with a, with a cane, but not because he needed to, but just as a, as a, as a style statement, you know? Okay. He could do push-ups, he could do pull-ups, you know, OG, like really, you know? <laughs> and he would, he taught me the box, showed me the boxing stance, and he would always say to everybody, he said, I'm going to tell you a little secret now, just for you. And he said, when you jab, hide your chin behind the elbow, behind the shoulder. You know, he'd uh, teach me to step forward, step back, jab, right hand. A couple of days went by, and there was a Russian trainer in the gym whose name was Yasha Springer. And Jimmy was the director, and he kind of managed the environment. After Mr. Tate kind of broke me in, he uh, uh, put me together with Yasha. And one of the interesting things about Star City Boxing Club you know, those that follow the boxing world may know some of the names that, I'm, that I will mention. But Star City Boxing Club at that time, even though it was one gym, it had like five or six different trainers in there with their own teams. You know, where the fighters inside the gym, you know, they had a lot of competitive animosity towards one another, let's say. And it was very competitive, very good fighters, very difficult environment to, to survive in as a fighter. So Yasha had his crew. Then there was Andre Rozier, who's one of the best trainers in boxing now. He had his crew. There was Norma Lorik, who was also one of the best trainers. He's been out for a little bit, but he was he had some world champions. He had his crew. He actually had Louis Calazzo then and Travis Sims. Uh, and Jimmy had a little bit of his of his crew and there were other trainers. Zap Judah was there, uh Junior Jones would come by, Shannon Briggs, Monty Barrett, Louis Calazzo, Curtis Stevens. Uh, Victor Roundtree uh, was a trainer then. Danny Jacobs was a little bit later, not when I started, but he came about four or five years after me. Saddam Ali, also about three, four years uh, after me. A lot of great fighters. Yeah, like elite, and elite, really elite, elite fighters. Truly elite, world, world champions. <laughs> world not, class. Not only yeah. world champions, I mean, some of the best pound for pound fighters, you know, in all the sport. I mean, really incredible environment. And summertime in Sarah City Bikes Club was extremely hot. I remember... It had no heat and had no air conditioning. So in the summertime, there was no running water in the gym. So there was a desk with jugs. And when the rounds were over, so it's three minutes of training, one minute of rest. Uh, during the rest, there was, let's say, five jugs. And there was 40 people or 30 people. And uh, people would come to, to the desk and jug down the water, you know, one by one. <laughs> and uh, I don't think anyone got sick <laughs> pre-corona yeah pre-corona pre sure for sure pre-corona yes how old were you when you first stepped into starred city i was 13 years old and i know jimmy o played you know if not the greatest one of the greatest influences in your life so i'm curious how did that so it sounds like he took a liking to you from the beginning 
how did that evolve, I guess, as the time went on when, when you started to develop a relationship with him and get closer with him? Well, you know, Jimmy was a great trainer, a philosopher, a real uh, unsung hero of the community, and just did so many things, helped so many people. I obviously stood out. You know, I was a white boy, the only one in a competing team of Star City Boxing Club, you know. Uh, I was an immigrant. I didn't really speak English great at that point. was still learning the culture. And Jimmy obviously, you know, observed my work ethic and and uh, my similarities, my differences with within the gym. And he took a liking to me. You know, my father and my mother initially for the first year and my brother uh, used to drive me. So Jimmy developed a relationship with them. And, I mean, my parents really felt comfortable with Jimmy. They felt that he was responsible and that he truly cared for me. Okay. And and Jimmy, you know, slowly started to form a relationship with me. We began to have conversations, you know. Jimmy would call me and tell me about boxing and a lot of the great fighters. And then, you know, and, and then as time went went on, Yasha left the gym and there were some changes. And Jimmy, you know, really took over training me really full time. And that wasn't only, you know, just boxing training. I mean, it was boxing training, but meaning that it wasn't just the physical exercise of going to the, in the bag and things like that. But it was a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of mental training, a lot of philosophy, a lot of, you know, uh, just a lot of things about life. And I had the chance to, for years, to just hang out with Jimmy, you know, and, and go hang out with him and his group of friends, you know, be in certain environments that someone from my background would never really be exposed to on such an intimate level. Yeah. Um, and I've seen Jimmy, obviously, been through the times when he he always used to tell me being boss is a difficult thing. And, you know, and Jimmy, as you know, the boxing community sometimes attracts certain types of folks, you know. And, you know, and Jimmy always had to manage that and make it a safe and productive environment in Stereo City Boxing Club. And sometimes people's people's egos, you know, would, you know, would flare up and, you know, and then it's... It was territorial in some ways, and there was only one ring. And I got to tell you, it was just such an intense and such an incredible place uh, at Stereo City Boxing Club. Uh, and yeah. So many, I mean, it was just like, you know, people say the school of hard knocks. I mean, it was really, I mean, but on so many levels, you know. <laughs> I mean, and it would attract, obviously, once in a while you'd get, you know, some business folks, some CEOs that would come maybe once every two weeks and whatever. And it was it was because it was such a hotbed of talent. So one of the things that was consistent with Star City Boxing Club is there was a like a line of second of uh, cards and second parking. For those that know, that live in New York City, know what it means. For those that don't, may not. Like you in Michigan, they don't know what second parking is. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so you know u- usual cars like Chrysler, Ford, Fords. But once in a while, you'd see like a Lincoln or a Mercedes or a Lexus or a Bentley. And you'd be like, man, somebody important's in the gym. And, you know, and you'd walk in, and it'd be... Floyd Mayweather came to the gym, by the way, in 1996 with Zab Judah after he um, after the Olympics. Um, I remember meeting Floyd in, in Stereo City Boxing Club, actually, for the for the first time. So it was just a water environment. And winter, so we talked about the summertime. Wintertime, there was no heat. <laughs> and there was no bathroom. You go to the bathroom, you'd have to go... 
Uh, it was, was like in the parking garage, no? Correct. Yes, it was in the parking garage. And for the first year, I got rides. And then after a year, I had to take the bus. And it was the B82 bus. I would take it on Kings Highway and Ocean Avenue. And I would take it for about 40 minutes to an hour. Uh, and the last stop was uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, Stavis City. So usually when I would get to the gym in the wintertime, I'd have to go to the bathroom to the before, I start, <laughs> before I start training. So uh, the gym was so cold. And you go inside that bathroom, the bathroom had heat, and you warm, warm your hands up, get a little warm, and then you would start warming up many times in a really heavy sweatshirt or a jacket, and then as you go on, you know, you get warmer and then things start rolling. <laughs> Can't cook with cold grease. <laughs> <laughs> I really can only imagine. You know, I've only been in the gym once, and that was the first time we met, and that was the first and only time that I had met Jimmy O, but I just remember, and I was young then, but... I remember I was with my dad as well as the photographer. We were doing the, the photo shoot with you. And I remember Jimmy O had story after story. And I remember both my dad as well as the photographer, Rob at the time, just I remember everyone being like a movie needs to be made about Jimmy O. He had so many stories and <laughs> so many lessons, I guess, from just the experience meeting him. Just I remember him sharing so many stories and lessons i guess from his own life experiences and i remember him being such a really like a fascinating human being oh he was a wealth of knowledge and he grew up through different kind of social changes in uh in, you know in the united states he's seen things change and you know the older i get the wiser jim becomes and i thank god that i have many of his lessons still ringing in my ear that i still have recollection of many of the lessons that he taught me. And when I was listening to, to many of them, they kind of didn't really make sense because I didn't really in, encounter the experiences that he was talking about. Mm. And and uh, being in a, in the business of boxing, a lot of times dealing with certain situations, you know, uh, things happened and I just kind of laughed to myself about Jimmy, you know, pointing this thing out and that thing out. And, you know, one of the things that I want to say is like mentorship is so important. You know, Jimmy really believed in me. And I think that during my difficult times in my life, that really helped me um, and really encouraged me, you know, and helped me believe in myself. And that's one of the one additional thing that I'm grateful for to Jimmy O. Would you say that like his his mentorship overall? I guess I'm curious. Is there and I I know that he's had such a profound impact on on your life, but I'm curious. Is there like one thing that you really carry with you on a day to day basis? Something that he that he he's given you or I guess left you with is there anything in particular or there's there's just too much to to say one thing why don't you Mio's favorite things was the lord works in strange ways <laughs> <laughs> and that is, ain't that the truth man <laughs> yeah ab- absolutely so from what i understand once you were here your mom got sick correct yeah she was diagnosed with breast cancer from from what i understand when when you were already in in the states well i think she had it when we left but it was diagnosed here, yes. Got it. How old were you around that time? I was nine years old. Okay, so she was diagnosed when you were around nine. So when, when she was diagnosed, you're, you're obviously a young kid. So did you understand, I guess, what was what was going on? No, at that time, I didn't understand what was going on. I mean, I saw my mother going to the doctor, being bold for a certain part of time because of chemotherapy and, radi- and radiation. But she was still functioning. And I didn't really understand the extent of, of the illness at that time when I was nine years old. I only truly understood it as I got older and when she relapsed. And she she was sick for, for I read, two years? Um, 
a little under two years. Yeah, the and relapse was after the five year relapse. She was sick. Yeah, for a little under two years. Got it. Okay, and I guess so. You're so you're a young kid. So how did you how did you cope with with everything that was going on when she was sick, and I guess ultimately when when she passed. You know, it was very difficult. You know, I've always felt that I was a spiritual person. I always believed in God. My focus in boxing gave me strength and gave me inspiration. And that's something that I kind of, um, where I pointed my energy towards. But, uh, you know, you just take it day by day and truly challenging time. And something that I think about, you know, now that I'm older and have a family myself, something that I, you know, think about those times, you know, being being young, being 14 years old and, and, and dealing with some of those situations, it was truly challenging, you know, but, you know, sometimes when you're in the storm, you don't think about, you know, you just think about covering up and making sure that, that you get through the day, you know? So, yeah. And, and a lot of times the effects of that and the real feelings associated with that, you know, are felt after. So it's fight or flight, you know, and you have to fight because, uh, you know, because at that time my mother depended on me, you know, my family depended on me and I just had to do my best to keep it together and to be constructive and to be as productive as I could be. You know, I, I had a deep faith in God. Was your family observant? Was your family religious? No, or... my family was not was not at all observant, meaning that they were just a regular Soviet family. No, no, you know, nothing. Um, we didn't grow up with any observance. The only observance that we did have is, you know, we're now in the Passover season. So I remember that my father used to buy Passover. I'm sorry, used to buy, my father used to buy matzah on Passover. That was the extent of our observance. And my grandmother, whose name was Ita, who was my mother's mother, who we grew up with, uh, who lived in a house next to us, uh, she went to Cheder. She went to a Jewish school when she was a kid before, you know, before the start of communism. Uh, she saw her parents being uh, killed uh, because they were Jews. She had to. She hid under the bed, and she saw her father uh, and her mother uh, being killed. She had during World War Two, during hunger, she her some of her kids died. So she's really been through a lot. She was a religious lady. She, I mean, and she, uh, you know, knew certain things and kept certain things to her best knowledge and to her best abilities, you know, being where we were. But I remember when we came to the United States, every Yom Kippur, she would go to the synagogue and she would sit there morning to night. And she was, you know, in her late 70s, older lady. She gave us inspiration and gave and gave me early knowledge of, of, of that, you know, to the extent that she could. Okay. So I guess when your mom was sick, were you observant or you were more spiritual and you had a, a deep connection and faith with, with religion and God, or you really started to develop your thoughts around religion and your feelings more when your mom was sick? Well, you know, I, when I came to Brooklyn, New York, it was the first time that I saw, you know, religious Jewish people walking around the streets and, you know, kind of openly being Jewish. I've never really experienced that before. And, you know, being spiritual, I try to approach and going to synagogues and different religious organizations, I never really felt inspired. It never, it never struck a light in me in that way, in a, in a constructive way. And one day I came to visit my mother and she was rooming with a Orthodox religious lady and the lady's husband came to visit, was with his wife and, you know, we were there for the whole day and, uh, you know, when you're in the same room, you strike a conversation and we started talking about life and about God and about challenges and about different things and this, this man was a very warm man nice guy, the older gentleman, and he took my information and gave it to a local Chabad rabbi. And, you know, at that time, I didn't know the difference between the different kind of groups in Judaism. 
And uh, this rabbi, whose name is uh, Rabbi Zama Liberov, and it was Chabad of Flatbush, uh, you know, began to contact me himself and through some of the folks that worked for him. And, you know, I didn't really feel comfortable because I didn't have great experiences before that. And I just just didn't feel comfortable from, you know, for many reasons to communicate with him on a consistent basis. But uh, he was very warm and very consistent. And one day, you know, probably as a result of some challenges with my mother's health, you know, I went to the synagogue and I went during the week and I saw there, you know, some folks that were dressed more religiously, some folks that were dressed in regular secular clothes and they were all, you know, together and, and communicating. And I just felt a certain aura of holiness, of goodness, of harmony, and it inspired me. And slowly but surely, you know, I started to come back and started to learn a little bit about, you know, about myself and about my roots as a Jewish person. And I was, you know, also very, very serious about boxing, you know, and, and the two kind of really intertwined in my life at that time, and really one helped the other. Obviously, besides besides dealing with, with my mother, you know, I was also starting to really come into my own as a boxer. And was compete, you know, was starting to compete at a fairly high level, and you know, boxing is a lonely sport. I mean, and even competing at a high level, being in the gym every day with those, with those guys that were killers, man, that were the best, you know, really, really tough guys. Yeah, monsters. <laughs> I mean, really, man, incredible fighters. I, I remember particularly when we used to box, like with Curtis Stevens. The gym used to stop because we had such wars, man. It was just like, you know, it was for bragging rights every day, you know, like yeah. two times a week. It was incredible. It was just an incredible experience. Anyway. But when you're in the ring and when the other man wants to truly take take your head off, that builds a certain, you know, it's, it's really truly fight or flight. And uh, that developed my spirituality uh, and made me get in touch with, with, with that, you know, every time I step into the ring. So I see. So it sounds like boxing and religion went hand in hand for you. For sure. So I'm curious, you know, obviously your mom passed away. And I guess like today as a result, as someone who is observant, very connected with spirituality and God. I'm curious to get your thoughts around, like, do you believe everything happens for a reason? Or like, where do you net out on that? I'm, I'm so intrigued, given like your, your background and connection to spirituality. You know, I read your article about, about that some time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> does everything happen for a reason? Yes, everything happens for a reason. But sometimes we don't necessarily understand and see that reason. That in itself is a challenging process, but it is a positive one because that leads to being positive and being constructive. If in each situation you do whatever you can to, you know, to mend it or to make it positive or to, or to deal with it in the best kind of way. And then, and then whatever happens, happens. Something's outside of your control. So yes, everything happens for a reason, for sure. I deeply believe that. And again, and when, you know, when challenging things happen in your life, uh, it's very hard to, well, it's not even hard. It's just like, you don't even want to listen to that. It's just like, you know, sometimes you're just so deep in your pain that that's all there is, you know? Mm. So looking back, maybe not in the moment, but as a child, maybe now looking back, even if it was all you knew, I'm sure you can attest that you had a, a, a challenging like childhood. You moved here from another country, didn't speak English. You and your family built a life here. I just want to talk about that experience a little bit more because you, you brought it up and I, you know, one of the things that made me feel whole in the Sarah City Boxing Club is most of those kids were from East New York, from Bronx, or from very tough areas. I remember when we were first came here, you know, we were on food stamps and welfare. Then food stamps, now you get cards. So people 
thank God for that. So people can't really tell, you know, if you're struggling. But back in those days, food stamps were just dollar bills that looked different. They looked like food stamps. And and first of all, I remember being in a fruit store and wool bombs, which I think may no may no longer be around, popular chain of food stores in New York City. And there was these packets of fruits and vegetables mixed together, and some of them were rotten, and some of them not so good and whatever. It was sixty nine cents. And I remember, you know, my mother buying those and I remember staying in line and paying with food stamps and just feeling so embarrassed by it, you know, it's just like because you're just you're so different, you know? And mm. and when I was in you know, and when I was in Star City Boxing Club, you know, we would go to tournaments and you'd get you win, you get a t shirt, you get a free meal, you get whatever, you get a trophy, you get something, you know? You get a sweatsuit. Yeah. And like and th- that social struggle, you know, that forms a mindset. So I was really fighting to come out of my ghetto, you know what I mean? To come out of my poverty. And yeah. uh, sharing the gym with the with like minded individuals, kids and, and grown ups that understood the process of being poor, that understood the struggle of being poor. And in some ways, you know, as a kid growing up in the Soviet Union, you know, just from parents talking and from older folks, because I didn't really get to experience it because I was too young, but you get the sense that Jewish people were second class, you know, that they didn't get the treatment that other people got, you know, and okay. didn't get the opportunities, you know. So, you know, uh, being in the gym at that time and getting the really, still really kind of really early in my Americanization process and being able to to get respect and form a relationship with these different folks. And Jimmy O, you know, truly playing a pivotal role in me being able to express myself and express my identity, you know, when I got a chance to get out there and to get some press and to get, you know, to, and to get my 15 minutes of fame. You know, I, I felt that it was my opportunity to be very open about who I was, about, you know, uh, about my Judaism and to use it and to use my boxing experience as a platform to let people know and to make people feel proud about it, about who they are. And, you know, America is the greatest country in the world because no matter where you, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, if you work hard, you will have the best chance to make it. You may not make it because life happens and sometimes, you know, things out of our control intertwine. However, the best chance to make it is, is in America because if you work hard and if you got talent, you got smarts and, and perseverance, who you are will not stand in your way. And that's an incredible thing. And, I, and I'm very blessed to be here and I'm very grateful that my parents brought me here. And today is the year anniversary of Clarissa Shields versus Christina Hammer. Today is April 13th which is the biggest fight in women's boxing history. And I had the honor of promoting it, you know, and I know that I'm jumping ahead. Yeah. But just to connect it, you know, I have a kid that grew up in Odessa, came here, was on welfare, was on food stamps, and, you know, and, and they had a dream of making it in the boxing business as a fighter and then as a promoter. And it's really incredible that I'm able to, that I was able to do lots of challenges, lots of hard work, lots of tears, lots of black eyes. That's okay. That's, that's part of life, you know? But just to be able to have the opportunity yeah. to do it and to make it, and that's a you know that's that's a compliment to this country, and really God bless America. So so far, a lot of the people that I've been connecting with have faced some significant tragedy or obstacle, adversity. A lot of people that I had interviewed thus far, they have lost someone significant in their life, whether that be a parent or a sibling. And I guess you know specifically in the context of thinking, sort of why bad things happen in general or why bad things happen to good people. And I know you had mentioned that you read like the article I wrote. So 
I guess I'm I'm curious why you believe everything happens for a reason. Well, everything happens for a reason, but I mean, you make that choice. I think that individual makes the choice. Talking about most difficult experiences to kind of extract a lesson from mm. it, and and obviously understand the pain and deal with it constructively and in the best way that you can, and find the growth from it. That's really the only way to be able to move forward and be healthy. I mean, you have to find meaning in your experiences. You know, I, re- I read a great book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, which really talks about it. He talks about people, you know, who've been through a Holocaust, who've been through concentration camps and finding meaning in, the, in those challenges and in those pains. And everyone goes through their journey and through their moments of hell, so to say. But I can only talk about myself. And for me, you know, it's been through those pivotal, difficult moments, I really tried to find meaning in it, to find growth and, you know, and just, and to deal with it, you know, in the, in, in, a, in a productive way. And a lot of times while it's happening, it's extremely difficult to do, but, you know, uh, sometimes self-pity and these different things that come into play and, and, you know, they want to tackle, you know, the feelings of positivity and proactivity. Again, I'm talking about myself to go to the next level and to, you know, to try to live a full life with the losses and with those difficulties. It's important. So really it's important for, for me to find the lesson and the growth in it and, 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 and move forward. So really growing as, as a result of, I guess, whatever the, the adversity or the brick wall is in front of you. Well, it's, you know, it's inevitable, you know, it's inevitable. You know, yeah, you, you have you to, can, you have to fight. Well, sometimes, I mean, like, you know, you know, I believe success comes from the blessing of God, obviously. And, and not to say that you don't have to work hard. It's everyone has their talents and their, you know, and, and ways that they have to realize themselves to the fullest. But ultimately, I believe that we're blessed with success, you know, with positions and all that stuff. But I do want to say, however, the world is the world and people go through their challenges. And, to, you know, and a lot of times to, to get to that, to that position, to get to the top of the food chain, you know, a lot of times you have to go through a lot of bitterness and a lot of pain and people putting you down and, and people being tough and nasty and all these different things that people go through, you know, and that can make somebody a nasty person that can make somebody, you know, resentful or those experiences can make someone resentful, can make somebody bitter. Do you know, it sounds like maybe the, the hardest moments in your life, you've in some form grown as, as a result, correct? I've tried to do my best, you know, and that's an everyday journey. Yeah. And not to say that I haven't been down, that I haven't had the blues and that happens, you know, that happens. That's part of the human experience. <laughs> do you think that it's possible to what you gain as a result of what you lose or the, the challenge, the adversity that you face? Do you think the only way to gain those lessons is by actually living through that hardship? Well, I think the greatest teacher is experience. Mm. And there's nothing that you can learn like experience. There's nothing, you know, nothing. They say to get ready for a good fight, you got to have great sparring partners. You know, Mino Stewart, one of the greatest <laughs> trainers of all time. Freddie Roach, one of the greatest trainers of all time. You know, they would pay sparring partners to try to knock down the stop pupil. So, so only through tough challenges and through adversity do you get ready for a title fight, do you get ready for the best, you know? Yeah. So... Only experiences and only, and I and hopefully it teaches empathy and teaches for others that go through it, and you know it teaches you things that one has to learn about themselves, you know, uh, and and uh, you know, through pain and through struggle uh, and through whether it's poverty or emotional struggle or relationships. Sometimes it's circumstantial. Sometimes it's not in you. Sometimes 
you know, you're a result of other people's decision or whatever. But at the same time, but to find the meaning in, in those circumstances and, tr- you know, try to move forward as a better man, as a more educated man, as a more experienced man. I totally understand what, what you're saying. And actually, I resonate with quite a bit because, you know, through through my own, I guess, grief journey and my own my own losses and in, in dealing with the loss of my parents, I feel I've greatly grown as a result. I feel for me, tragedy has been one of my greatest teachers in a sense, just to give me a better perspective on life. And I guess, you know, sort of, as I mentioned before we started the podcast, really it's made me think, how do I want to spend the limited time I have here on earth? So I can resonate with quite a bit of what, what you're saying. Yeah. And obviously all of those experiences of struggle and pain and growth are individualized and different things matter to different people and different people digest them in, you know, in ways that are meaningful to them. But yeah, I hear you. I still struggle with, I guess, finding meaning in why the bad things happen. I'm sitting here and telling you that as a result of losing my parents, I've grown as a result of that. Without a doubt, there's a lot that I've gained. But I guess, you know, where I, where I struggle or where, where I start to wrestle with this philosophy or this idea is sort of around the why, like the meaning behind it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean, those things are impossible to explain. It's impossible to explain. You know, my, my mother passed away when I was 16 years old. She was 49. So I want to say that I could have learned many of those lessons in other ways. And so, you know, but as a human being, you know, I have limited comprehension and I have a certain view of the world, but I understand that there's a lot of deeper and there's many dimensions to this. And there's no justification for it. There's no, I mean, a mother is a mother, a father is the closest people to us. So I can't say it's for the better. It's terrible, but for one to be, again, I'm talking about myself, to be, to stay sane and to, and to move mm. on and to, and to, and to, and to uh, try to be active and to enjoy the things in your life that you can enjoy. You have to, you know, when experiencing those challenges, try to do your best to help the person or the situation in the best way you can in every way until there's just no more to do. And then things happen that are outside of your control. And for one to to be healthy and productive and to reach its potential, you just have to, in my opinion, you know, grow from those experiences and try to to be better and to be more mature and more experienced. So, like you know, I've said this to to numerous people before, and um, I I really only try to look forwards because the past is the past. What happened happened, and all I can I can't control even what's going to happen. I can only control the the here and now, the present. And that's a very high level to reach. That's a to live in that mindset is very, I mean, I'm just talking, again, talking about myself. It's difficult because obviously our mind wanders to the future and to the past and to what could have and should have and whatever. But like you said, but the healthiest thing to do is obviously to focus on, on here and now and on the next, you know, on the next few steps. That is the healthiest way. I really try my best to, to live in that mindset. And with that being said, admittedly, I will tell you time and time again that I guess I like really believe deep down what I've gained as a result of my losses is significant. The perspective I have, the mindset I have, the way I am walking in my life today has really been, I think, profoundly, as weird as it sounds, and as terrible as it, as it is of the losses that I've experienced, I really believe, I guess, deep down, that I've, I've really grown a lot, I guess, as a result. And I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't change anything, even if I had the magic wand. I guess I'm happy with where I am today in that sense. I'm happy with who I'm becoming and, and 
I guess sort of how, unfortunately, you know, again, the circumstances I've lived through are terrible, but in the here and now, I, I really am like talking to, to you, a longtime friend, and I feel right now like I'm living in a blessing. I'm curious what your thoughts are around, like if you could, it seems like, you know, you've grown a lot as a result of your hardships. So would you change the circumstances if you can, or would you not given what you've gained as a result of the hardships you face? And I'm not just speaking around the loss of your mom. Well, I got to say, there's some things that happened in one's talking about myself again, that happened in my life that I may have not have understood yet and may have not come to peace with some challenges and things, but there's nothing you can do. Well, sometimes, again, sometimes when you're going through something, you know, you wish that you can't take a magic wand and say, how can this be better? You know? Yeah. However, constructively, the only thing that we can do is to learn from those experiences and grow. And certain things you just can't change. And certain, the only thing that we can change is ourselves. And the only, and that's a, that's a lifetime of work to be able to grow and to, to change yourself means to grow constructively and productively as a human being. That's an everyday challenge. So I've had some challenges in my life that have helped me become the person that I am today and have helped me grow. You know, some of them I'm grateful for. I can see the growth that they have caused and I can see the maturity and the experience that was the result of them. And some challenges are, were painful. You know, they were just painful and it was just, you know, you just have to live and understand that that happened. And maybe I wish that that wouldn't happen to me. But there's nothing I could do and it is what it is. And I have to accept destiny and accept circumstances and and find meaning in it for myself and grow and move on to them you know and move on to the next day got it well i appreciate you uh you know speaking so deeply with me obviously about a complex topic that i'm sure is like you know it's an emotional topic as well just speaking around having an honest conversation around the hardest things we've faced in life and reflecting on that for for a few minutes it is Uh, and i and i feel that because of our relationship that i'm able to even though you know, I know an unknown amount of people are going to listen to this, but you know, because of my comfort level with you, I feel comfortable. I appreciate your honesty and, and, you, and you opening up. So I wanted to shift a little bit because I feel like if I didn't get to cover a little bit around your professional career, as well as your, what you're doing now, it would be such a pity because your story, just the, the, the incredibleness behind your story continues way past you, know, you coming up and, and pursuing career as a professional fighter. So I feel like a lot of people who listen to this are very curious to know what it feels like to step into a boxing ring and face someone under the, the, the lights in, in the square circle. And I was curious if you could just describe what that feeling is like. Well, it's an amazingly empowering feeling, but it's something that you do your whole life. So it becomes kind of second nature in a way. However, obviously leading up to fights, it's an incredible feeling of responsibility and, and, and of pressure and pressure to win and then uh, to win in an impressive way. And there's really, a, you know, a whole array of emotions that go through, through your mind when you get into the ring. And you have to be of a certain mindset and, and of a certain, and have certain goals in mind and have certain things that you're fighting for to be able to, and kind of forget about everything else and really have in your mind, if need be, you leave your life in the ring. I mean, to be successful and to, and to kind of really give it your all, that's the mindset that you have to, you have to really go to war. That's been my, my mindset. And training camp, the gruelingness of training camp prepares you for that experience. The running, the sparring, the training, the aches, the pains, 
making weight, all that prepares you for that experience. As a professional fighter, would you say that the battle in the fight happens before the fight or would you say the fight really happens the night of the fight? Because a lot of people say that the training camp is much harder than the fight itself. Well, the training camp is, is definitely harder than the fight itself most of the time, so many of the times. But, you know, but also but dealing with the mental pressure and the mental, you know, the, the challenges of being of performing on a given night at a given time, you know, in front of people, being on TV, you know, all those things uh, put a lot of pressure on a person. And uh, to be able to put what you learn in the gym and, you know, I've seen many, many times where guys that are subpar fighters, let's say, you know, in, in sparring, you beat up on world champions, but when they get to the fight, race location and do what they need to do and the guys that are you know so so are not able to leave all that in the gym and when people are watching when the cameras are on are not able to really turn on you know the the magic so to say so many components go into being able to perform uh, in the ring mm. and i want to say one of the most important components for me kind of crossing over using my experience as a, as a boxer into my into what i'm doing now as a promoter is when someone has had a successful amateur career Usually, that's a good sign that they'll be able to to be successful in the pros. Okay. Everyone always thinks, like, uh, boxers are fearless. So were you ever scared before you would get into the ring and, and fight? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's a lot of emotions that go that, that you experience, but I think fear is one of them. You know, Mike Tyson was, like, the best man on the planet. You know, he used to cry before fights and used to have a lot of emotions, you know, even as a world champion, you know, in the locker room. A friend of mine, his name is John Scully has a saying basically that the weight in the locker room leading up to the fight would uh, strip most people of whatever macho feelings they think they had. They had. <laughs> That's really the hardest. The hardest thing is two hours before the fight in the locker room. That is the hardest thing. That is the hardest way. Same with an amateur. There's a lot more pressure as a professional. As a professional, it's more significant. As an amateur, you know, sometimes you go to the tournaments, into these tournaments, uh, and you fight every day. You know, it's like an elimination process. So yeah. first day, maybe you're nervous, but then second, third day, it's like because you you become used to the feeling and you fight so often that you don't really feel it so much. And obviously the fights are not as long. But amateur boxing gloves are made to absorb uh, shock. Uh, and you wear, you know, you wear a T-shirt and you used to wear a headgear. Now you don't wear a headgear anymore. But, but amateur boxing is it's a different sport in a way in terms of the, the skill level is very high. But just in terms of physical, the physicality of a professional boxing, in tough fights, you know, it's more physical. Mm, makes sense. So in your professional career, you went up until the Amir Khan fight. Several years, you were undefeated. So I'm curious, what was it like? When I think of your, your life, obviously, I feel like that was another big moment of adversity, I guess. And I'm curious if, if you can just sort of share a little bit about what that journey was like. That was extremely challenging for me. I mean, I got married three months before that. You know, obviously I had hopes of, of winning the fight. And, you know, even, even the thought of losing, I didn't think they would be as bad as it was. So mm. that really challenged my belief system, really. And talking about, you know, everything for the better and, and what's the meaning of it. And I really had a hard time kind of figuring out why it happened the way it happened. I would imagine that, you know, now as a promoter, you have probably a perspective that other dominant world champion fighters or un undefeated fighters maybe don't have that you can impart or share this wisdom with them? Yeah, well, I mean, so my first fight back after the Amir Khan fight was the fight that I promoted. So 
you know, that kind of opened the door for what I'm doing now. So even though kind of well, there was a disappointment and kind of one door closed in a way, you know, another, another door opened. So my first event was uh, September 1st, 2010. I was an active participant in that one uh, as a fighter. That was about nine months after, after that fight. That was in Brooklyn, yeah. right? I want to say I was there. I wish it was. Were you there? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Did you have Matis Yahoo walk you out? Not for that one. Not for no. that one? I was there for, for numerous ones following that fight. So a- after the Khan fight, did you, did you still have aspirations of fighting for the world title again? Yes, and I actually signed to fight for the WBA welterweight title about two years after that fight. And I signed it, and it was supposed to be promoted in Madison Square Garden. And then there were difficulties with it for reasons outside of my control, uh, and the fight never happened. But I still have the signed contract for that fight. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So you already have your promotion at this at this stage, correct? Yeah, but I was really promoting mostly for myself. Okay. At that point, were you thinking, like, I want to create a plan for life after boxing? Yes, for sure. So, you know, one of the challenging things that happened after the Amir Khan fight is, I, you know, I made some money, but then, yeah, I bought an apartment. You know, I think I first got married, you know, all the expenses of a new life. And uh, about eight, nine months later, I, I had very little money, almost no money left. And that was extremely challenging for me because I had a new family. And, you know, and, and, and I didn't have an opportunity for a big fight. So that's really why I promoted my first show. I made a little bit of money. And then, you know, when I was fighting for these events, I was, you know, staying active, making some money. But then there were gaps, you know, there, there were gaps of time when I couldn't fight because of different things where I couldn't put a show together. And I was looking for work, you know, I was looking for a job. And as a fighter, you know, I knew a lot of, wealthy people, a lot of influential people, everybody wanted, you know, before I found here, kind of, a lot of people were my friends, go out to dinner, go out to parties and events. And then, you know, it's like, uh, people really stopped returning my phone call and, you know, if they would return my phone call, they would be nice, but would not be helpful. I was looking for jobs, any kind of, you know, I was just because I was desperate to pay my bills, to pay my mortgage, you know? And, yeah. uh, I was unsuccessful. Um, and I became a personal trainer for a little bit and did some training at a local school and whatever. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I was trying to, to find ways to build my promotional business. I see. I guess now your your promotional business has grown at an incredible rate, if you think about it. You're doing it less than a decade and your roster of fighters is extremely impressive. I'm- so I guess at what point do things start to take that turn, I guess, when you were able to be like, okay, I'm, I have something. So I'm really doing it as a company for about six years. So first okay. of all, in the beginning, I had no money to promote professional shows. It was around the time that the Golden Boys signed an exclusive deal with the Barclays Center to bring boxing. And I actually fought on the first event, the opening of the Barclays Center, I fought on that event. You know, the brand of Brooklyn and boxing was coming together and it was popular and it was hot. So I saw a lot of potential in professional boxing for a company, but I just didn't have the funding to do it. So I first started to promote uh, amateur boxing shows at Five Factory Gym. So I would have Brooklyn Brawl amateur boxing shows. And we had two events, I think, and we had the third one scheduled. And as luck would have it, amateur boxing, for like three days, they pulled the license. Like Aiba 
pulled license for USA Boxing and the events weren't licensed. So our USA Boxing event, local amateur boxing event, you know, lost licensing and there were no fights. And there was, you know, when you're getting started, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a tough, tough pill to swallow. What I just want to say with this is that I took whatever was available to me and what was available to me was to promote amateur boxing shows and we did and we made a little bit of money, you know, and then it's time to promote professional boxing again. Meaning that I was really had a vision and believed in it and I just wanted to to do whatever I can to push that agenda forward, to push the business model forward. Uh, you know, and that's what I did in the beginning. Mm. Do you mind sharing what uh today what Salida pr- promotions has, has become and what you've built it to over the last six years? Yeah, so uh, we promote some of the best fighters in the world. Uh, Clarissa Shield, two, Shields, two times Olympic gold medalist, undisputed middleweight world champion. Co-promoter Gerard Miller, uh, Otto Whalen, and Shoja Khanragashi. We have about 30 fighters, most of them world-rated, some world champions. You know, have a, before the corona virus hit, we had three televised shows. And the last the last USA televised event, uh, boxing televised event, before, you know, before the shutdown, uh, we had a show box March 13th. So, you know, we work with some of the best fighters in the world and, um, and our stable, you know, continuously grows. Uh, obviously, we don't know what... I feel like, to some extent, the sports world is going to change as a result of this. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, once we come out of this, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. How can people find you or get a hold of you if they want or find out more information? So... People can follow me on my social media, Instagram, Dimitri underscore Salita, Salita underscore promotions uh, for my company address and the same. On Twitter, it's actually DSalita um, and uh, Salita promotions. And uh, follow our news, follow our fighters, uh, and uh, then attend our events when, whenever that's possible. And this all ends. Well, thank you so much for the additional time, the podcast really opening up and I guess, you know, having an honest conversation about really challenging times, I'm, I'm really grateful for that and all the, the knowledge that you shared. And I'm sure this podcast is going to inspire a lot of people. It definitely inspired Thanks, me. Thanks, Danny. Always, always good to communicate with you and, and great to see you doing uh, great things. All right. Well, thank you so much, thank Dimitri. You. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 